Twitter users are fleeing en masse to Mastodon. Starbucks will get reporters' messages with unions. A headline making open SSL vulnerability and how to remove your phone number and email from Facebook's database even if you don't have an account. Welcome to Surveillance Report 109, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. Henry's never here, as always, but he will be back next week, as always. I am Nathan from The New Oil. If you are a VIP listener who does not get the promo segment, I encourage you to go check out this week's promo segment because I am about to put out a question to you guys. But first, let me start with Monero because that's not changing. Monero is a privacy-focused cryptocurrency where we know basically nothing about you. Monero is as close to digital cash as you can possibly get in the sense that it is almost completely anonymous. If you want maximum anonymity and you want to support us, be sure to look into Monero. The other way to support us currently is Patreon. Patreon is a recurring fiat currency platform where in exchange for your continued support, you get perks. Right now, we are offering a sponsor-free segment. We are offering show notes so you can skim it. You can see what the stories are. You can see our notes written down in a written format. And we also offer the Q&A segment at the end where we take a question from our listeners and answer the question on the air for everyone. We don't always answer every question we get, but we like to pick the ones that either we think are the most fun or the most interesting or that we think everyone will benefit from. Now, here's the part that might be changing. Recently, Henry posted asking people if they are actually taking advantage of the video VIP segments. I am asking you guys this week to let us know if you are a Patreon user or if you would possibly consider being a Patreon user, what kind of perks would you like to see? I'm not saying anything's going to change, but when we first like spun off surveillance report into its own thing and started its own channel and everything, we just kind of put together a small handful of perks that we thought you guys might be interested in. And the plan was always to come back and revisit that either to add more perks or tweak the perks or maybe even add additional tiers. So this is your chance to speak up. Until then, we do have a Patreon, which is a great way to support us. Every little bit helps and we appreciate you guys. Thank you so much and looking forward to hearing your responses. Our highlight story this week. It was hard to pick a highlight story because there was kind of a lot happened this week and this is the one that I personally saw making the rounds the most often, so we'll talk about it. The headline says Mastodon's microblogging app saw a record number of downloads after Musk's Twitter takeover. For those who are not aware, Mastodon is an open source federated social media platform. It's very similar to Twitter in the sense that you only get a set number of characters. I know the instance I'm on has 500. Um, I think some of them default to 240. There's different instances. There's different servers. So you can sign up on this one and still talk to everybody on every other instance. And it's pretty cool. And actually, because it's federated, it works with other programs that are based on ActivityPub. So things like PixelFed, which is like an open source Instagram. Things like WriteAs, which is what I use for my blog. Things like Pleroma, which is kind of a... it's. Similar Similar to Mastodon, but it's aimed at more like single user instances. PeerTube also shows up on uh, ActivityPub and the Fediverse. So yeah, it's honestly, in my opinion, I think it's a really neat idea. Back when Musk originally said he was going to buy Twitter, we saw a whole bunch of people jumping ship to go to Mastodon. And now we're seeing that happen again. It's hard to get an exact number of active users, partially due to the fact that Mastodon is federated. It's also due to the fact that Mastodon does not require any identifying information. And the apps are also kind of scattered. There's different apps out there that offer different things. So, you know, it's possible that some of the people who downloaded apps use different apps or maybe just didn't use an app altogether. But here's what we do know. On the default instance, which is Mastodon.social, they saw 70,000 new signups on Friday, which was the day after Musk took over Twitter. For context, they had 10,000 the day before. (laughs) 
The official Mastodon app jumped as high as number 21 in the U.S. App Store, which is pretty high. And just personal anecdote, my wife told me last night that she saw it trending. She saw mass like hashtag Mastodon was the top trending story for her on Twitter. I know everybody's, you know, algorithms and feed are a little bit different, but it was a trending story. Due to this new influx of users, the default Mastodon.social server is experiencing some outages. They gained 123,000 new users over the past week and they now have 528,000 active users. So uh, number one, be patient if you're interacting with anyone on that server or using that server. Number two, if you are using that server, please donate and support the project if you're able to. To my knowledge, every single one of these uh, servers, they don't sell user data. They don't sell ad space. They're entirely community supported or out of the pocket of whoever the admin is. So if you're a user, by all means, get in touch with your admin and ask if there's a way to contribute. Some of them will say no thanks, but most of them will have like, yeah, here's a PayPal address or, you know, buy a coffee or whatever. So my last note about this story is while you're there, surveillance report, tech lore, the new oil and privacy guides all have Mastodon accounts. So if you're thinking about joining or you have joined, you can go ahead and follow us there. Surveillance report is on the botsin.space instance. So that would be surveillance report at bots. Well, at surveillance report at botsin.space. Techlore is at Mastodon social along with privacy guides. So that would be at techlore at mastodon.social at privacy guides at mastodon.social. And the new oil is at freeradical.zone. So at the new oil at freeradical.zone. There are a lot of other privacy creators that are on there, including a lot of familiar names you might know. There are content creators. There are projects that you already know and use, like Tutanota is really active on there. So definitely go check that out. There's also some mirrors for like bigger organizations that aren't necessarily on the Fediverse, like EFF has a couple of mirrors. A lot of really cool stuff out there. Definitely check it out. With that, we'll move into our data breaches. We're going to start off in Italy, where Vodafone Italy disclosed a data breach after a reseller was hacked. The reseller is known as 4B SPA. The cyber attack took place in the first week of September. It included subscription details, identity documents with sensitive data, and contact details. No passwords or network traffic data was compromised, but in these situations, it's usually highly likely that we're going to see a spike in phishing attacks, so beware of that if you are a customer. The vulnerability has since been patched. On September 3rd, a cybercrime group called Kelvin Security claimed to have 295,000 files for sale that was stolen from Vodafone Italia. So it's not clear if this is the same breach or even if it's legit, but if I remember the article correctly, this Kelvin Security group has been around for a little while, so it probably is legit. If we hear anything, we'll let you know, as always. Dropbox is disclosing a data breach after an attacker stole 130 GitHub repositories. The stolen data included API keys and other credentials, plus, quote, a few thousand names and email addresses belonging to Dropbox employees, current and past customers, sales leads, and vendors, unquote. This did not include any code for the core apps or infrastructure, customer accounts, passwords, or payment information. This was the result of a phishing attack that is becoming increasingly common. And in a bit of good news, in response to that phishing attack, Dropbox is responding by enforcing hardware tokens or biometric authentication for all employees, which is great. It sucks that it took this for them to finally do that, but hey, good on them for rolling this out. AstraZeneca had a password lapse that exposed patient data. This was exposed for more than a year. There were credentials for an internal, internal server that were left on a GitHub repository in 2021 which when you plug them in, allowed access to a test Salesforce environment that contained some patient data. AstraZeneca has since fixed this, I assume by taking down that repo. At this time, they're saying that it didn't contain any sensitive data. The article wasn't really specific on what kind of data was in there, but they rightfully so, they did really focus on like, why were you using real patient data to begin with? Why didn't you just make up a bunch of like John Smith stuff? If we hear anything updated to that, you know, like, oops, turns out there was sensitive data. We'll go ahead and let you know. And our final data breach comes from URLscan.io. 
who unwittingly leaked sensitive URLs and data. Quoting the article, URLscan.io is a website scan and analysis engine. The system accepts URL submissions and generates a wealth of data, including domains, IPs, DOM information, and cookies alongside screenshots, unquote. This was very similar to VirusTotal. The VirusTotal, I think, just tells you if a file is good or bad. It doesn't really give you quite as much information as this does. This service is apparently very popular in enterprise environments, which means that a lot of users were using it probably unknowingly. This is where the problem starts to come in, because since it was used in an enterprise environment a lot of the time, then the logs contained things like private meetings, private folders, password reset links, telegram bots, DocuSign requests, PayPal invoices, etc. And this was publicly available if you knew how to look for it. This basically seems to boil down to bad default settings. Uh, URL scans said that they have uh, adjusted the default settings and informed users and like, uh, what was the phrase? They like trained users on how to better use the settings, some, 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 something or other. But the point being, they had bad default settings that logged these scanned links for way longer than necessary. So default settings are really important. Now we're going to move into companies, and we're going to start off with a very unusual, unprecedented story. The headline says Starbucks will get reporters' messages with union federal judge rules. For those who are out of the loop, a lot of Starbucks stores, their employees are currently trying to unionize. I'm told that some stores have been successful, but I don't know the ratio. I, I don't know how many have tried to unionize. I don't know how many have failed or if any have failed, but it's, it's an ongoing thing. That's my point. So this particular story started in June in Buffalo, New York when the National Labor Relations Board asked a court to reinstate seven former Starbucks employees who alleged that they were fired for union organizing activities through a group called Starbucks Workers United. As part of this court case, Starbucks has requested communications records between employees and Starbucks Workers United. The judge has sided with Starbucks and is ordering SWU to turn over, quote, documents, emails, texts, and other electronic communications between the workers and any digital print, radio, TV, internet-based, or other media outlet regarding its organizing efforts, unquote. I'm actually going to quote the article again here. In rare cases, courts have ordered news reporters to reveal the source of sensitive stories, especially those involving classified material or national security. But it's unusual for a judge to order a party in a civil case to hand over such a broad record of contacts with journalists, unquote. So rightfully so, a lot of people are worried that this is going to chill free speech, that uh, people are going to be more hesitant to come forward to journalists for any number of reasons, whistleblowing, stuff like this. You know, with all these stories, we try to, uh, or at least I try to ask myself, like, what is the takeaway here? What what lesson can I learn from this? And I, I kind of don't know because, you know, the, the go-to options seem obvious, like encrypted communication and ephemeral messaging. But I understand why the union would want these communications on records. You know, if somebody's saying, like, here's what the work environment was like, or here's my story, here's my, my testimony, you know, for this, this case, you want that written down and you want to know who it came from so you can back up your case. And also, even if it was encrypted, like, this is coming from the source. This is the same as if, like, you sent me an encrypted message on, like, Matrix, Session, Signal, whatever, and if the judge ordered me to turn over my laptop or just ordered me to turn over the communications, like I've already got them decrypted. It's not like they went through and hacked them from, you know, they're subpoenaing phone records. They're subpoenaing, subpoenaing the actual union organization. So yeah, this is just really unfortunate. I don't really have anything else to say. It's very unprecedented and this is an ongoing story. So if we learn more, we'll keep you guys updated. All right, let's go back to talking about Twitter for a minute. Uh, the headline says, as Twitter brings on $8 fee, phishing emails target verified accounts. Elon Musk is trying to monetize Twitter. That historically has been one of Twitter's drawbacks is they're not a very profitable company. And one of his things that he's floated and apparently is, is going to go ahead and do is they're taking away the verification checkmark and they're making it a paid feature. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and express a personal opinion here. I think this is a really stupid idea because the whole point of the verification checkmark is that it's supposed to verify this person is who they say they are. 
a lot of people are arguing the reason he wants to take it away is because it's become like a status symbol. I guess I, I understand that, but also like that's just how it goes. You know, there's always status symbols out there. It's, it's just gonna happen regardless. And to be totally honest, this is still turning it into a status symbol because these are the people who can afford to throw away $8 a month. Okay, let me get off that soapbox. But anyways, so he wants to take away the verification check mark and turn it into anybody can be verified if they pay money. As a result of this decision, phishing emails are now flying for verified account holders, warning them that if they don't take immediate action and click the link below, they're gonna be de-verified and stuff like that. And I'm sure there's similar emails going to non-verified people that, you know, click here to sign up for verification. So not really sophisticated stuff. And we see this stuff all the time. This is a fast moving, chaotic, high stakes situation and attackers are gonna take advantage of that. We see that all the time with things like at the beginning of the pandemic, there were all kinds of phishing emails going out about unemployment. This is just how it goes. And our last company story, uh, to be honest, this isn't even really a big story in my opinion. The headline says TikTok tells European users its staff in China gets access to their data. We already knew this. We covered recently how TikTok admitted that this was true for US users. I don't know if anyone out there was under the delusion that like, oh, they're only doing that to the US, but not to us in Europe. Like, okay, well, if, if you thought that, now you know it's not true. They're doing it to everybody, okay? Give it six more months and I'm sure they'll say they're doing it to South America or Africa or Russia or like this, this, this is what they're doing. This shouldn't surprise anyone, but here we are. That was our last company story. So let's move on to research. This one's really interesting. The headline says Boffins rekindle one-time program crypto cryptographic concept. So back in 2008, some researchers presented the idea of a one-time program. Here's how the article describes those. Alice sends Bob a program encrypted in such a way that quote, Bob can run the program on any computer with any valid inputs and obtain a correct result. Bob cannot rerun the computer with different results and Bob can learn nothing about the secret program by running it, unquote. So basically it's a program that you run it once, it delivers the data and then it's, it's done. You can't run it again. You can't forensically analyze it or anything like that, which needless to say is a very interesting concept, but the idea was abandoned at the time because they thought it was unfeasible. One example they gave is that you could run the program in a number of virtual machines with networking cut off and you could see the results multiple times or you could get different results and different inputs and stuff. So yeah, at the time they were like, this isn't really a thing that's feasible. It's an interesting thought, but not feasible. Quoting the article again, but now a team of computer scientists from John Hopkins University and NTT Research have laid the groundwork for how it might be possible to build one-time programs using a combination of the functionality found in the chips, in the mobile phones and cloud-based services. More specifically, they have hacked counter lockbox technology and applied its use to an unintended purpose. Counter lockboxes protect an encryption key under a user-specified password, enforcing a limited number of incorrect password guesses, typically 10, before the protected information is erased. The hardware security module in iPhones or Android smartphones provides the needed, use, needed base functionality, but it needs to be wrapped around the technology that prevents Bob from attempting to cheat the system, the focus of the research, unquote. So the rest of the article basically goes into a deep dive of the research and how this could work. And there's still a lot of work to do. And they also pointed out that this could be weaponized against people to do things like deliver malware. But this research alone lays a potential groundwork for one-time programs, which I think it's safe to say that would be a huge deal. That would be really interesting and has a lot of great uses for privacy and security. So really promising stuff. Again, quite a ways off, but it's it's really cool to see them take this idea off the shelf and be like, hmm, maybe we can pull this off. So yeah. Our next piece of research is a study that shows privacy awareness is, quote, the new normal for consumers and online behavior is much more guarded. So this research comes from DigiGrail, which is a business to business platform that to be totally honest, I looked at their website. They look like they throw around, throw around a lot of buzzwords about privacy compliance, but I don't understand exactly what they do that helps protect or respect privacy. They also listed Okta as one of their customers, and they recently had a massive data breach. So 
take that with a grain of salt. But anyways, it, it was interesting research. They surveyed about 4,000 respondents in the US and Europe in July of 2022. According to this survey, Privacy awareness is now more common, with 60% of respondents saying that they are, quote, concerned about their online privacy. 53% say that they don't feel they have control over their online identities. 34% feel, quote, overwhelmed by trying to manage privacy settings and opt-outs. 85% want to know exactly who their data is being sold to, and 79% want control over said data collection. About half of the respondents say that they do stuff like delete cookies and browser history and unsubscribe from unwanted emails. One third of them use ad blockers, manage site preferences, and use incognito modes. And just under one third are using password managers, while less than 25% are using multi-factor authentication. So as always, I, I don't know what the methodology for this study was. It's possible that they queried a lot of tech-savvy people. And again, this is always a self-reported survey, so we always have to take this kind of stuff with a grain of salt. But here was my takeaway from this, and maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but my takeaway is that People do actually care about privacy, but you have to make it accessible. Like, I'll be honest, I was one of those people who for a long time was like, they already have all my information, there's nothing I can do about it, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until I started learning about some of these tools like ProtonMail and DuckDuckGo and Firefox. And, you know, I've grown since then and I've adopted other tools and I've refined my techniques. But like, it's, it's about getting people in the doorway. It's about letting people know that these options do exist and they're not crazy difficult in some cases. And so I think people do care. I, I, that's my takeaway. Again, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think people do care. They just have to know that this stuff is out there. Our next story is more interesting than anything. It says U.S. government employees exposed to mobile attacks from outdated Android and iOS. Quoting the article, according to a new report, almost half of Android-based mobile platforms used by U.S. state and local government employees are running outdated versions of the operating system, exposing them to hundreds of vulnerabilities that can be leveraged for attacks. Further down in the article, the report additionally warns of a rise in all threat metrics, including attempted phishing attacks against government employees, reliance on unmanaged mobile devices, and liability points in mission-critical networks, unquote. Unmanaged mobile devices? Yeah, issue me a phone. I'm not putting your crap on my phone. Anyways, that's a different rant. Again, takeaways, I don't think there's a lot here. It's more just interesting, and it's worth remembering that we always say you should never lie to governments and medical people. But I still think it's, it's a good idea to push back on the data you have to hand over. You would be amazed how often... You ask somebody, like, what forms are actually required? And these days, like, relating to the last article, privacy is actually a little bit more mainstream. I definitely still run into the people who are just like, just shut up and fill out the form. But I also run into a lot of people who are like, hmm, let me check. And for the record, I don't think you should be a jerk to these people. They're just doing their jobs. They're trying to make a paycheck. They're not the ones who built the system. They're not the ones who are trying to collect your data. Just remember that governments are incredibly insecure. Push back. Don't Again, don't lie, but try to hand over as little data as you can because they cannot protect it for crap. Our final research story is really quick, and I think it's just interesting. The headline says Windows 11 runs on fewer than one in six PCs, and that comes out to about 15.44%. This is almost certainly due to the high hardware requirements for Windows 11, because, you know, in the past, virtually any Windows computer, unless it was really old, could run virtually any Windows version. You could just go ahead and upgrade to the next one, and it wasn't really an issue. Windows 11 is kind of the first one where they're like, no, we have very specific hardware requirements that you have to meet. So it's going to take years for new hardware that meets these requirements to roll out to the general public, especially with like supply chain and chip shortages going on right now. So yeah, that is almost certainly the case for this. The article goes on to discuss some other metrics, like how many people are using Windows 10. Some people are still using 8. If you want more information, it's all in there. But that's the basic takeaway is like Windows 11 is not highly adopted right now and probably will not be for years. With that, we're going to move into politics. Massive pandemic relief fraud has Congress eyeing digital IDs. I'm going to quote the article. 
Last year, McKinsey conducted an analysis of 12 countries, including the U.S., that provided COVID-19 aid. It found that the countries that were most successful in distributing aid to the right people were the ones that had already invested in digitizing financial infrastructure, including the presence of basic digital identification systems with broad population coverage. Countries like Singapore and India cover more than 80% of their population with such a system. The U.S. population coverage with digital IDs was around 70% in 2021. Scrolling down a little further in the article, partly reacting to the pandemic, the U.S. has slowly begun to ramp up that coverage so that more Americans have digital IDs. McKinsey reports that this will make it easier to provide financial aid and more effectively and quickly in the future. But it also unlocks potential opportunities to provide Americans with more privacy and security than traditional IDs typically give. For example, a driver's license, which has become the default ID for most people in the country, has a vulnerable combination of sensitive information printed right on it, name, date of birth, and address. With digital IDs, the theory is that Americans can better protect sensitive information by relying on a QR code to share only the information needed for a transaction to be verified. This would limit the data collected by third parties that can then be seized by bad actors through data breaches, unquote. They do make a valid argument. Of course, this article is largely pro-digital ID, and unfortunately, they pretty much completely ignore concerns. Like, for example, in theory, yes, the grocery store only needs to know, am I over 21? But how is that going to work? Like, is my app going to be capable of saying, like, yes, I'm over 21, just trust me, or is the store going to be like, no, you have to give us the exact birthday? How can we guarantee that even though we can collect less data, we're not going to? Because we're already living in a surveillance capitalism-fueled society where the more data, the better. So I, I don't understand what the incentive is to collect that less data, especially in a world where people seem to largely not care about data breaches. So that's just in response to their specific, like we haven't even gone to like tracking, censorship, all that kind of stuff. Anyways, I, I mainly wanted to share this story because it's growing in America. We've talked about digital IDs quite a few times on the show, and if you're an American, it is coming for you. But we do have good news if you're an American. The FTC accuses ed tech firm Chegg of careless data security. Quoting the article, the Federal Trade Commission on Monday cracked down on Chegg, an educational technology firm based in Santa Clara, California, saying the company's careless approach to cybersecurity had exposed the personal details of tens of millions of users, unquote. Regulators noted tons of security lapses dating all the way back to 2017, including the time that Chegg issued root login credentials, which exposed more than 40 million names, addresses, and passwords in 2018, when an employee who was fired used those root credentials, credentials to access all kinds of data that they didn't have any business accessing. The good news and the exciting part of the story is that the FTC does actually seem to be cracking down on companies. Last week, we talked about how they cracked down on Drizzly. I don't know if the FTC was involved in this, but I know there was a lawsuit we covered recently about Uber and their big data breach in 2016. Now they're going after Chegg. So, I mean, yeah, they're definitely going after like the low-hanging fruit. But I mean, hey, you got to start somewhere. And in my opinion, this is awesome. Good for them. They're, they're cracking down on this stuff. Our next story is a little bit concerning. Well, okay, as always, let, let me read the story and then we'll talk about takeaways. The headline says British government is scanning all internet connected devices hosted in the UK. And that's title kind of says it all. This appears to be, I think, a one-time scan. They might be doing it periodically, but this is purely for research purposes. They are trying to assess the vulnerability of UK devices. They're trying to figure out like who's exposed, who's not hidden behind a firewall, who's running outdated servers and, and firmware and stuff like that. The article does say that organizations can opt out by emailing a list of IP addresses to a specific email address, but there's really no recourse for individuals. I kind of have mixed opinions on this one. Number one, this is kind of alarming, but at the same time, number one, it is for research purposes. Here's where I'm kind of like, and whatever. Cyber criminals are constantly doing this anyways, and for far more nefarious reasons. So, I mean, if this makes you uncomfortable, which I understand, I, I'm uncomfortable with it, but also like cyber criminals are already doing this. I think it would be a much better use of your time to just say, how can I protect myself? 
okay, if cyber criminals are scanning everything all the time, how can I stop them? How can I keep my stuff patched? The whole nine. So again, I want to be clear. It makes me uncomfortable too, but let's be real. The criminals, the bad guys are already doing this. So I think it would be more productive just to focus on that defense. Okay, this next one I'm not going to excuse, and this also comes from the UK. UK government said to extract hospital data to Palantir system without patient consent. For those who don't know, Palantir is a notoriously data-hungry company run by Peter Thiel. Go ahead and look him up. He's a co-founder of PayPal and named after a tool that the bad guys use to communicate in Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. The article states that the data shared will be identifiable and patients were not consulted nor given a choice to opt out. The goal is to understand and reduce wait times, which have apparently hit crisis levels since the COVID pandemic started. The data is supposed to include things like admission, inpatient, discharge, and outpatient activity on a daily basis. And the article doesn't really specify, like, does that include just like John Smith checked in to this hospital at this time and was dismissed at this time? Is that going to include like diagnoses, treatments? I, I mean, like there's so much data that could cover. Is that basically going to include everything from start to finish? The silver lining here is that privacy advo advocacy groups are already threatening legal action. <laughs> the article specifically mentions there's one who like got a similar initiative pushed back a few years ago. And they're already like, oh yeah, we're taking this to court. We'll keep you updated if we hear more and hopefully this will get thrown out because this is way not okay. Our next story comes from the Netherlands where the Netherlands wants to monitor all payments from 100 euros and higher. The headline specifically says, uh, at the end, it says opens door to unprecedented mass surveillance. And again, headline really says it all. As usual, this is an effort to combat fraud and terrorism and you know, make sure people aren't spending, sending $100 to terrorists, which from what I'm reading in the news, Europe's having an energy crisis right now. I don't think anybody is trying to send $100 to a terrorist. I think everybody's trying to find $100 to pay their freaking energy bill. Privacy groups are, of course, alarmed by this because it opens the door for additional mass surveillance. We're going to stay in the Netherlands, though. <laughs> and it's somebody else's turn to get angry. It says, anger is councils ask for kitchen and loo photos to prove property values. Quoting the article... <sighs> I'm going to screw this up, but at least I'm not screwing up an Indian word for once. Uh, it says counselors in Enschede en en have called a halt on a city experiment to value properties according to photos taken of their interiors. The local council tax department had been asking local homeowners to send in photos of the inside of their homes so that property values, W-O-Z, can be calculated more accurately. One of the homeowners they interviewed cited privacy concerns, quote, what will the tax office do with the photos? Will they be stored or destroyed? There is a total lack of clarity, unquote, which is fair. Enshed's finance chief said that this is an experiment in response to appeals arguing homes were being overvalued, which apparently in the Netherlands, if a home is overvalued, the city is responsible for the legal cost to correct it. Getting the value correct is definitely important. I guess the city was trying to pass off... Um, I'm trying to find a way to word this diplomatically without calling names. Um, I guess they were trying to avoid the legal bill in the first place by invading people's privacy instead. It sounds like they've paused that and hopefully will not resume it. Speaking of screwing up Indian names, our next story comes from India, where India's central bank is starting a pilot of the digital rupee. They actually already have started it on November 1st. The Reserve Bank of India is launching this, and the pilot includes nine banks, including State Bank of India, Bank of Baroda, Union Bank of India, HDFC Bank, ICICI Bank, Kotak Mahindra Bank, Yes Bank, IDFC First Bank, and HSBC. This currently only applies to the wholesale market and is considered a secondary market. Retail market will begin within the month, and the article notes that India is currently, quote, staunchly anti-cryptocurrency. And our final political story comes from Iran. We're going to sum it up real short here, but this is a somewhat longer article. It's not crazy long. We posted some crazy long ones before. This one's a little bit longer, 
but it is 100% worth a read. I'm going to quote like a paragraph here. According to these internal documents, SIAM is a computer system that works behind the scenes of Iranian cellular networks, providing its operators a broad menu of remote commands to alter, disrupt, and monitor how customers use their phones. The tools can slow their data connections to a crawl, break the encryption of phone calls, track the movements of individuals or large groups, and produce detailed metadata summaries of who spoke to whom, when, and where. Such a system could help the government invisibly quash the ongoing protests or those of tomorrow, an expert who reviewed the SIAM documents told The Intercept. Unquote. This wide backdoor access, basically, is made possible in part by regulations requiring telecoms to give the communications regulator authority, quote, direct access to their systems to query customer information and change their services, unquote. So all this, this whole article, all this information allegedly comes from a massive cache of documents that was hacked from Iranian cell carrier Ariantel including emails and documents between employees, contractors, and government personnel. Like I said, the article goes in to really dig in deeper to this stuff. Like, for example, um, they mentioned how they can break encryption on phone calls. The way they do that is they can just by issuing a simple command, I don't know if it's like a checkbox or a, a CLI thing, but it's like one command that kicks users off 3 and 4G networks onto 2G, which is slower and less secure. They can see who is in a given area at any time en masse via IMEI. So just throwing in like a new SIM card won't work. Again, single command. They can just be like, boom, tell me every phone that was connected to this tower at this time. They can also access data. Like when they do that, tell me every phone, they can, again, I don't know if they click on it or what, but they can pick a single phone and they can get data like, who the father's name is, birth certificate number, nationality, address, employer, billing info, location history, and Wi-Fi networks and IP addresses that were historically used. Yeah, so again, this is not a crazy, crazy long article, but it's it's probably going to take you, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to read, depending on how fast you read. But I highly encourage you to make the time for it because they, they really go into detail and it's pretty wild stuff. Let's move into the FOSS section. I have actually really good news in the FOSS section overall. So the first one is... An interesting choice, I guess. A uh, Signal is going to roll out Snapchat-like stories. That title really says it all. I have Signal and Signal Beta installed on Windows so that I can have multiple accounts open. It's already in the beta. I've heard some people say it's in their iOS beta on test flight. You know, for the record, I know I really went off on Signal a couple weeks ago about removing SMS, and I, I stand by everything I said. But for the record, this is just Signal trying to appeal to the mainstream with features. That's, that's really all it is. Even Meredith Whitaker straight up said, she's like, I don't give a crap about stories. But other people do, and it's particularly in Southeast Asia, like people really want these features. And as long as it's not breaking the encryption or the safety or the security or the privacy, they're trying to reel in the users. And unfortunately, we've seen this time and time again. It doesn't matter how secure or private something is for the average person. What matters is the experience. And we see that firsthand. People are using Telegram. People are using WhatsApp. People are using SMS. People are using TikTok. People are using Facebook for some freaking reason. People do care about their privacy, but they also really value the experience. And so if we ever want these privacy-focused services like Session, like Matrix, like whatever, whatever you want to think of, like Linux, to take off, it's not enough to simply say, well, it's private. Well, it's secure. Like, okay, that's fair. And that'll win over some people, like all of us watching. But to really win over people on a massive scale, you also have to say, what does this thing do that I can tangibly see that the other thing doesn't do? And that's why Signal keeps adding things that admittedly I think are kind of dumb, like Giphy support, like stickers, like stories. I don't really use these things very often. I use GIFs every once in a while, but I generally don't use these things. But a lot of people do, and those are the things that are going to draw people in. I think it's kind of bloat a little bit, but at the same time, as long as it doesn't break the security or the privacy, sure, whatever, whatever reels people in. 
Now, interestingly, here at the very end, Meredith Whitaker went on to say the Signal will never charge for the base app, but they are considering paid feature. Like specifically, she cited extra storage. I'm not really sure what that means. They're basically trying to become financially independent. Right now, Signal really heavily depends on just raw donations, especially from like government grants and stuff like that. They're just trying to become less dependent on that and more self-sustainable, which is good. She also said that Signal costs tens, quote, tens of millions of dollars per year, unquote, to build and maintain. I would really like to know more about that. For the record, they probably have a transparency report that I've just never read, but that is a lot of freaking money. I know servers aren't cheap, but wow, that is a lot of money. Okay, our next story says Cryptomator Hub 1.0 release. I'm going to go ahead and quote one sentence from the article. In short, Cryptomator Hub it adds access management for your Cryptomator vault. It enables a secure way for you to work in teams with confidential and sensitive files for any cloud storage, unquote. This is definitely focused at like businesses or teams, but if you're in a situation where you want to share files securely with other people, or like I said, you, you've got a business or an organization where you make these kind of calls, Cryptomator is awesome. I mean, it works with uh, Dropbox, Google Drive, I think Apple Cloud. Um, a lot of people recommend using Cryptomator along with even encrypted cloud storage like uh, Mega or Filein or even your own NextCloud instance, which isn't technically really encrypted, but well, it's encrypted, but it's not zero knowledge. But anyways, point being like, it's an extra layer of security where you hold the keys and you don't have to trust someone else. So yeah, Cryptomator is uh, really well liked in the privacy community, which I'm okay with. And this is a new thing. Next says new open source tool scans public AWS S3 buckets for secrets. A new open source secret scanner, that's secrets S3CRETS, Allows researchers and red teamers to search for secrets mistakenly stored in publicly exposed or companies Amazon AWS S3 storage buckets, unquote, which means we're all going to have to put away those shots pretty soon. So I think we've uh, covered very similar projects before. There's a lot of projects out there nowadays that are trying to like find secrets that are in GitHub repos and stuff like that. So yeah, if you're a developer or a red teamer or whatever researcher, here's one more tool for you to add to your arsenal. And our last FOSS story, this comes specifically from Proton. It says, Black Friday is here. Upgrade your privacy with Proton. We could read off all the details to you, but honestly, it's better if you just go look at them yourself because otherwise we're just going to be reading off numbers and features and you just, it's better if you go look at it yourself. I believe they're running it all month. So they, you've got plenty of time to go pick this deal up. Side note, TechLore and the new oil both have Proton affiliate links. So if you decide, you know, I want a paid Proton plan, feel free to use one of those and it'll give us a little bit of a kickback. Or don't, if you don't want to, if you're not comfortable with that, we're totally okay with that. Um, those will be in the show notes. Tutanota never does Black Friday sales. They never do any kind of sales. And same with Mulvad. They both say that they keep their prices low year round. And therefore, number one, they don't really have the margin for Black Friday sales. But number two, they don't need to. Because again, they keep their prices low year round. And the reason I mention them is I'm sure that Proton is not the only company having a Black Friday sale this month. So if you guys find any others, feel free to share them in the comments. Like we're not trying to chill Proton Mail here, but they're a good service. We believe in them. We use them. So we do support them. But there are also lots of other great ones. Like I said, there's Tutanota, there's Molvad. They don't do sales. I don't think IVPN does sales. But yeah, if you know any other privacy services that are having Black Friday sales, by all means, share them around because we're huge fans of finding the right service that works for you, whether it's Proton, Tutanota, someone else, as long as they're private and secure, help out your, your fellow viewers and let people know if you've heard of any good ones coming up. With that, we're going to move into the misfits section. We're going to start off with OpenSSL, which has fixed two high security vulnerabilities. And here's what you need to know. 
I'm going to quote the opening line of the article because honestly, that really sums it all up. The OpenSSL project has patched two high security flaws in its open source cryptographic library used to encrypt communications channels and HTTPS connections, unquote. So the reason I say that's everything you need to know, because the article does go into like, well, here's the CVEs and here's what they did. Truthfully, this story may have been a little bit overhyped. So when it first came out, everybody was kind of like, oh my God, OpenSSL, super popular library. Uh, it's used in a lot of places like, holy crap, this is big. But number one, there are no, well, number two, there are no examples of it being exploited in the wild. Number one, and more important, importantly, why like once this full details came out, it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of overhyped this one. This only affected at OpenSSL 3, so 3.0 and later, which according to this article is only used in about 1.5% of environments. So really this is like, yes, OpenSSL is incredibly ubiquitous, but apparently the vast majority of people are using some form of version one. This one is not very widely used at all, but it's fixed. And that's good. I mean, even if it's not very widely used, it is used by some people. So that's good. It's fixed. Great job. Our next misfits, it says hundreds of US news sites push malware in supply chain attack. Quoting the article, threat actors are using the compromised infrastructure of an undisclosed media company to deploy the SOC Ghoulish JavaScript malware framework, also known as fake updates, on the websites of hundreds of newspapers across the US. The threat actor behind the supply chain attack has injected malicious code into a benign JavaScript file that gets loaded by the news outlet's website. This malicious JavaScript file is used to install SOC Ghoulish, which will infect those who visit the compromised website with malware payloads camouflaged as fake browser updates delivered as zip archives. For example, chrome.update.zip, chrome.updater.zip, firefox.update.zip, so on and so forth. So according to the article, the malware appeared on at least 250 US news outlets, including some major but unnamed outlets. My takeaway, be sure to disable JavaScript if you can. Uh, it's not always feasible. Personally, I use uBlock Origin for this. Disabling JavaScript entirely breaks most of the web. I use uBlock in hardcore mode, I think it's called. That works really well for me 99% of the time. You could try something a little bit less if you want, but yeah, just disable as much JavaScript as you can. That stuff's really dangerous. And it's also a privacy invasion. That's usually how fingerprinting and tracking is done, as far as I can tell. Definitely not the only way. We've covered some other ways on past shows, but in, in, as far as I can tell, that's like a primary method. There's also things like keeping your software up to date, because then you'll be patched up against known vulnerabilities to the best of your ability. And if you can, enable things like lockdown mode on iOS, you know? So this is why you should pick browsers with good security and enable things that improve your security. And of course you should be reading the news. So I'm not going to say like, well, don't visit news websites. Like, please read the news, keep updated, keep educated, preferably read a variety of different news outlets. So you get different opinions from different sources. So yeah. Okay. Our last story is just a pro tip. It says how to remove your phone number or email from Facebook. Even if you have no account in theory, this should be safe to use because we've covered in the past how like the Metapixel, for example, was collecting hashed email addresses. However, the article notes that Meta has not confirmed if, that, if that's the case here. So if you don't trust it and you don't want to touch it, I respect that. The tool does not require an account. It claims that they're never going to re-add it. Just one little tip for it. One of my readers suggested submitting your phone number in multiple categories because they have like mobile and landline. And they said that when they put in their phone number as a cell number, it wasn't found. But when they put it in as a landline, it was there. So I have a ton of phone numbers I need to go through and add. And that's not going to be fun. But I did, I, I did use an old email that I know for a fact they had on file and they said they've deleted it. Just a little pro tip. If you guys are interested, like I said, if you don't trust it, I totally understand. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying to my knowledge at this time, it should be safe to use. But if you want to err on the side of caution, hey man, I totally respect that.
All right, with that, we're going to go into our Q&A section. We only got one question this week. This comes from Frank, who said, A friend runs a personal web server and was sharing a file with another friend by typing the link into a WhatsApp message. Later, he looked in his server logs and found that WhatsApp had been trying to open the link and did so by sending a request after every character. So, for example, myserver.com slash D, myserver.com slash DE, myserver.com slash DEM, and finally, myserver.com slash DEMO. Frank says, why would WhatsApp try to retrieve web sources in unfinished URLs? You would assume that it would try and show a preview of the link shared, but that would be after sending the message. So it's probably not preview because they would probably wait until you're done typing the link. If that's not it, then why? The messages are supposed to be end-to-end encrypted, so in the spirit of that... They clearly have no business looking at resources for themselves, but this per-character type behavior is something that was programmed. It's not default behavior as far as I know. Do you or any listeners know why WhatsApp would behave this way? I totally agree with you. My first thought would also be previews because we have actually covered a story in the past about how previews can be used to break WhatsApp's end-to-end encryption. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there's a lot going on there. I don't know. I think, truthfully, I'm sharing it more here just to let everyone else know because, yeah, that is wild. If anyone knows why it might be doing this, other than, so the obvious answer the low-hanging fruit answer is it's meta. And of course, they're trying to collect as much data as possible. Maybe they're doing this on, doing this on purpose to break end-to-end encryption. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. We don't have any proof of that. But if anybody has an answer for why it would be doing this, I wish Henry was here. He'd, he'd probably have some. I guess the takeaway there is be careful what links you send on WhatsApp or even what you type, you know, maybe copy and paste a link so that you don't have to have them submitting every single thing. And the better solution is uh, tell your friend because he said, my friend found this creepy. Tell them Signal doesn't do that as far as we know. So, Or, you know, Matrix, Session, a, a, a better messenger that respects your metadata a little more than WhatsApp. Whatever's appropriate for the situation. Okay, that is it for the week. So Mastodon is growing. Thanks to Elon Musk, he's boosting the wrong social media platform. Starbucks is going to get some messages that were supposed to be confidential between reporters and unions. A headline making open SSL vulnerability that thankfully has been patched and how to remove your phone number and email from Facebook, even if you don't have an account, if you want to go do that. As always, anything that we hear, we'll try to keep you guys updated on, but we'll get to that because first we're gonna talk about our promo segment, which is Monero and Patreon. Monero is a cryptocurrency, it's privacy focused, it's totally anonymous. We can't see anything about you at this time. As far as we know, it cannot be chain analyzed. The IRS has a quarter of a million dollar bounty for anyone who can figure out how to chain analyze it. So. I feel pretty confident Monero personally. We don't see anything about you, but we do see your contributions and we're extremely grateful for them. The other solution is of course, Patreon. And like I said, if you are currently a subscriber or you would consider subscribing, please go ahead and let us know what kind of perks you would like to see. If you don't want to leave them in the comments or or something and you're also not a subscriber yet, surveillance report at protonmail.com. You can go ahead and send it there. We'll see it. If you're thinking about subscribing and you're like, well, what are the perks? We have a TLDR show notes that you can skim through in written format. We have a sponsor-free audio and video segment. And we have the ability to add a question, like ask a question like Frank did. Go ask questions, go get the notes, go not listen to us ramble on about this segment. Thank you for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask of you, like I said, is to share the podcast around. Share it with a friend, especially if there's a particular story you want them to know about. I definitely sent that Facebook link one to several of my friends that don't use Facebook. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option because that helps us be discovered and tells people that we're putting out good content. We're trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and you can help us do that. So thank you again for listening and see you next week where Henry will hopefully be back.